Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the God who speaks to show us what you are like. And we pray that that will be good news for us as we study the Bible this evening. And we pray this for your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen. To Samuel, chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And they crossed the Jordan and they went everywhere. Lots of places I'm not going to read to you. But I'll pick up on verse 8. When they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were eight hundred valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go, say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or... Will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days' pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. 
Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And Gad came, uh, sorry, uh, and when Arona looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming towards him. And Arona went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arona said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arona said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arona gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arona, No, but I will buy it from you for, for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Well, let's look at uh, 2 Samuel 24. And I've been waiting to start a sermon with these words the end because we've finally reached the end we started looking at 1 Samuel over a year ago and week by week we've gone through 1 Samuel then 2 Samuel and now the last chapter we've reached the end and if we were to ask people what they've learnt there might be many answers I hope there is one thing that we have all learnt, and that is that it is important to listen to the Bible because what we see is never what it appears. Our eyes play tricks on us, and we need the Bible to tell us what is really going on in life. And we've seen that all the way through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. When we started 1 Samuel, we saw with our eyes a woman who seemed to be completely cast off by God. She could have no children. And you think that God has abandoned her. In that picture, she's crying. 
but she was the mother of Samuel, who was one of the Bible's greatest prophets. She was not uh, uh, cursed by God. She was greatly blessed. But the Bible has to tell us that, or we just see a desolate woman. We read on, and we came to uh, uh, that was Samuel, and we might see that Samuel was too little when he was put into the temple, and we would have thought he would just become another little boy. God made him into a man of great stature and importance. In fact, he ran the country until they got a king, and they did get a king. Great man called Saul, who was magnificent, taller than anybody else, looked the perfect king, and was an abject failure. Then we saw a little boy who was a shepherd, the youngest of the sons, the least important in his family, becomes the greatest king in 1 and 2 Samuel. In fact, in the whole Old Testament. This boy becomes the king, the Messiah in the Old Testament, the anointed one. You can see oil is being poured on his head to show us what the anointed one of the New Testament would be like. He is the anointed king of the Old Testament to show us what the anointed king, his great descendant, would be like in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus himself. So again and again in the books of Samuel, what you see is not what is real, but what the Bible tells you will be the case, is what will happen. And we see that all through with other characters. There was a genius called Ahithophel. He is the whole, uh, he's, he's got the biggest brains in the book, knew always what to do. He ends up by taking his own life because he realized he got it badly wrong. Now, our eyes will play tricks. Our ears, hearing the Bible, will teach us what is true. And we're going to see that three times in this chapter. First, we are going to see a right desire that is actually wrong. And you see that at the start of this chapter where you have a king wanting to know the size of his army. Yes, I know that he's counting people, but if you look at verse 9, he is counting soldiers. So they're all people who can draw the sword. Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Now there's nothing wrong we're taking a census, governments do it all the time, and especially at the end of a king's reign, they want to show people they are leaving the country in a strong position. Remember when David Cameron stood outside 10 Downing Street, he wanted to tell people he's leaving the country in a financially strong position. David wants to show that he's leaving his country at the end of his reign in a militarily strong position. So the numbers are there. And you think that that's a perfectly right thing for a king to do. But God is angry in verse 1. 
And you might think that God is the one making David get it wrong. Because it sounds like that. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go number the people of Israel. But we know in the Bible that God, when he gets angry, is always responsive. Someone has provoked his anger. And the Bible then says that when God responds in anger, it is to show that he is completely in control. Remember I asked you to keep one finger in 1 Chronicles chapter 21? So if you just turn over there, keep your finger here. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, page 350. It tells us actually that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Uh, and we know that actually it was David that wanted to number Israel. Satan said, get on with it. So it is David who is ultimately the one who is doing something wrong. But when God lets somebody do something wrong, it is to show that he is in charge and that he is working out his judgment, his anger on that person. On Wednesdays, many in our church have been studying Romans. We know a man called Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And it says in Romans that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and gave him up to doing what he was doing wrong. Now that's what's happening here in verse 1. And God has hardened David's heart to do what he was going to do. But you will see also that David is the one who says he has sinned. If you look at verse 10, David's not blaming God. So back to 2 Samuel chapter 24 verse 10. David said, I have sinned greatly. And he's the one who's got that wrong. And you might say, why was he wrong? And the simple answer is that David, if he wanted his country to be safe, simply had to trust God would keep them safe, not an army. In fact, we saw just in the last chapter that when it comes to keeping people safe, God doesn't work with numbers. Look at chapter 23 and verses 11 and 12 and you will see one man fighting huge numbers against him. And you can see in verse 12 of chapter 23 why he won. The Lord worked a great victory. So now, David is putting his trust in numbers rather than in what God had uh, provided for him in the past. In chapter 7, God promised that David's kingdom would be safe. But now uh, David is trusting people, numbers, not promises. And so what seems like a right desire is very wrong. And we need the Bible to show us what we would not otherwise see because we're too proud to see when we go wrong. 
And so we need the Bible to turn the lights on and to show us that this is a right desire that seems right, looks right, is wrong. The second thing we learn, and we need the Bible teach us, is that we can have bad feelings that are right. Verse tells us that David is feeling bad. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And who wants to feel bad? People say this is the trouble with Christians. We put people on a guilt trip. And a guilt trip is never a good thing. Who wants to feel like this? And the trouble with that is that when we go away from the guilt trip, what we normally do is we shrink what we do and we say it's not important or we blame other people for what we do and we say it's their fault. It's actually a far healthier thing when we get it wrong to say, I have sinned, which is what David says. Because when you start talking like that, the amazing thing is that is the conversation that now puts you into fellowship with God himself. And so that's what uh, David's uh, guilt does. It takes him to God. And he says four things in verse 10. First he says that I have acted against God instead of trying to pretend he was acting for God. He was honest about that. That is what sin is. It is not doing evil things. It is simply not trusting. And David said, I've sinned, I have not trusted. Second, he doesn't make it a small matter. He says, I have sinned greatly. He realizes he's sinned against God. And he realizes his sin is big, not small. I have sinned greatly. But then he realizes that God can take away the sin. He asks God to do that. And then lastly, he wants God to live, uh, to make him live wisely. That's implied when he says, I have done very foolishly at the end of verse 10. A bad feeling that is entirely right when he brings this conversation and he puts us talking to God. And then the third thing, there is an angry God who has mercy. And again, that is something that we need to understand because it's very easy when we look at God and David and see God getting angry with David in verse 1 to say, this is the trouble with the God of the Bible and especially the God of the Old Testament. He is a God who is always angry and we don't like that. Now it's very interesting that when you look, at, look to the person who God got angry with, in this case David, the one thing that this man who felt the anger of God, the one thing that he was convinced about is that this God had mercy. And so therefore he went back to this God to talk to him. If anger is the problem from God, then we go straight to God 
the source of anger because he is also the God of mercy. And uh, his mercy in verse 14, you can see, the one who feels God's anger says, God's mercy is great in verse 14. And I think there are three reasons why we can see that God is very merciful in this chapter. First, he gives David a choice of punishment. He says, you choose. And when he says that, he is encouraging David to put his trust in the mercy of God rather than the numbers of his men, of his fighting troops. So you choose. He's inviting David to put his trust in God's choice once again. And secondly, you will see that it is a short time. God chooses three days, but then he stops before the three days. He stops at the appointed time, which implies it is less than three days in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning until the appointed time, not until the full three days. And then we find that when God stops the pestilence, it isn't because David has been praying, because even in verse 16, uh, before David starts praying, in verse 17, God has stopped. Even before the prayer, God says, enough. He is full of mercy. But then the third thing that you notice that shows God is merciful is that he lets David provide a sacrifice to cover his sin. The way it goes is in verse 17, David says, I have sinned, let your hand be against me. And when you see what happens in the sacrifice that follows, you realize first, it is a costly sacrifice. You get a, a, a feel for that as you turn over the page, and he says, I will do this for free. I will pay for the land and for the materials. It will be my cost. First sacrifice is costly. Secondly, the cost is paid by an animal. David doesn't die. The animal dies and the plague is stopped. But the third thing to notice about the interesting thing about this and why I think this chapter is a perfect way to shut the book is because the place of sacrifice is interesting. It's on Aaron's threshing floor. Now go back to 1 Chronicles 21 for the last time and you will see about this uh, threshing floor. And uh, you will see that... Um, in 1 Chronicles uh, 21, um, that they were to set uh, an altar on the threshing floor. It's the same story again, for the most part. Uh, but then you see, uh, at the end of chapter 21, uh, uh, that David uh, was uh, uh, there, 
verse 28, the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor and he sacrificed there. And then in chapter 22, verse 1, he says, Then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And this is the spot on which the whole temple of Israel would later be built. David said, this is the place to build the temple. And so we end uh, the story of David by a sacrifice that covers the pride and foolishness of people. But in the place that would one day lead to David's most famous descendant, the Lord Jesus, doing what many sheep will offer, will pay for the sacrifices, and then the son will come, and he will do what David could not do. In verse 17, David says, I will pay for the sheep. He couldn't do that. A sheep had to be paying for him. But then later, his son would come, the Lord Jesus, and he would pay what David couldn't pay in verse 17. And to get us ready for that, the temple in the Old Testament is full of sacrifices to show us what Jesus would do when he came. And this was the place that started it. And it is just wonderful for us to understand how this part of the Bible doesn't just end with a random story, but with a setup for the future. Now what can we learn? Three things tonight. First, if you are new, then it is, I think, helpful for us to see that the only way to understand what really uh, matters is by going to the Bible rather than by trusting what we pick up with our eyes and with our own understanding. And what we need to understand from the Bible, the great crime against God is not to trust him. And the great answer to our failure is to go back and talk to him. I want to suggest, if you're someone new, maybe you're listening to this on our website. I want to suggest it's really great to just think of those four things, to look at verse 10 and to say, verse 10, to God, thinking through the four things that we talked about earlier, that we have lived when we don't trust God, we live against God, not for him, and that the thing that we do is big, it's not small, but that God can take away our sin and give us a desire to be wise, or we will be very foolish. If you're new, verse 10 is a great way to talk to God, to realize we don't trust Him. What happens if you've been to church lots? It is possible, isn't it, to, uh, for us to feel strong, for us to count up maybe the number of church services we've been to and uh, our track record of what we've done in different churches that we might have been part of in the past. And it is helpful, isn't it, to know from David's position of strength what really is acceptable to God, 
which is a position of humility. Christian maturity is not saying I've made a success of being a Christian. The way David was trying to show he'd made a success of being a king by having so many people who could draw the sword. Christian maturity is not saying I've made a success. But Christian maturity is to say, God, I need you to sacrifice because I have sinned against you and I have sinned very greatly against you. David would later write that the sacrifices acceptable to God are not success. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David said that. And he wrote that in a Psalm 52. But then what happens if you are a Christian? What happens if there are times when you have felt God's discipline on your life? And you think, this is a bad thing. God must be against me. What are you to do in a situation like that if you feel that God is not pleased with you and how you've lived? But if you feel bad about it, let me tell you, that is the first sign of new life. When you begin to feel bad about going against God, it shows that you have a spiritual pulse, that you have a spiritual heartbeat, that you are spiritually alive. And what we do when we feel that God is perhaps disciplining us, where we have failed him and we know that we have, even before he sends us a signal like David, we know in our heart that we have got that wrong. Always respond to the red arrow by putting next to it the green arrow that looks to God for his mercy. And if you want to live a mature Christian life, you will definitely experience God's hand of discipline on you from time to time because that's how he loves his children and he grows us to be like him. But always when the red arrow is felt, stick it next to the green arrow of his mercy. If God's anger is the problem, God's mercy is always the answer. You go back to the same person. Don't run away from him. Run towards him. Because that's where the future will be changed and made into something new. But let's pray that God will help us to learn those things. And then after that, we'll take some questions where things might not have been entirely clear. Let's pray first. What we normally do is we leave one minute and you can talk to God and then I'll pray for all of us and we'll take the questions after that. When our minute's up, let's pray. Father, you are kind to us and you've given us the Bible to stop us being blind and to help us to see things as they really are. Give us grace to see that when we are broken, we are blessed. And that when we feel your anger, it is so that you could magnify your mercy. Help us to keep these treasures close to our hearts 
and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.